0: All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of Your Brain on Science. Are you ready for a dose of preclinical research with me, your co-host, Elena? I'm here to answer the question that everyone is dying to know. If you give a mouse DMT, do they see mouse god? Um, And before we start on the topic of preclinical or animal research, I just want to state that modern medicine would absolutely be non-existent without animal research. That's just a fact. Things I like to ask people when I talk about what I do. Have you ever taken ibuprofen for a headache? Have you ever used antidepressants, antibiotics, or have had a vaccine? Most people, the answer to these questions will be yes. Um, and if so, that means that you've benefited from animal research. And I think it's important to know that we use animals in research um, because they offer experimental models that would be impossible to replicate if we were using human subjects. So some animals have biological similarities to humans that make them good models for specific diseases, um, like rabbits for um, certain arterial sclerosis, and monkeys for polio. Uh, Mammals are essential for researchers uh, because they're the closest to us in evolutionary terms. Um, Also, many diseases that affect humans also affect other animals. Um, but they might not occur in insects, plants, or bacteria. So it's important to note that a large majority of research also focuses on insects, plants, bacteria instead of animal subjects to answer certain questions. Um, But for what we're talking about today, we're gonna be talking about mammals. Um, So now that we've done and we got that out of the way, um, I wanna just talk a little bit about this issue with interpretation of results in preclinical research Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about this and about models and research that we use before we answer that fun DMT question. Um, So one of the main issues with result interpretation is anthropomorphism. Um, So this is where we tend to give human characteristics, emotions, or behaviors to non-human entities like animals. And the best example I can give in a real world scenario is when people consider their pet dog or cat as their children, right? They dress them in clothes. They infer that their barking or their meowing um, means something more like something more humanistic than just I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, um, I want attention, right? And with pets, that's cute. It, us humans, we all have this need to, to crave implicit connection with nature, to form these social connections with other living things, and to empathize with human-like facial expressions. So there are other facts that you know play a role in this phenomenon as well. Um, you know, Humans, we um, are top of the food chain for most animals. We do have our predators, right? Um, but we have this need for control. We have this loneliness and this attachment to non-human companions as well. So now that I've gotten to this, I want to move into the field of research um, and kind of talk about why researchers would purposely try to not anthropomorphize the animals they work with. Um, Right, because it becomes um, an issue and it induces an emotional attachment to the subjects that could affect data and create bias. Uh, But on the other hand, having empathy for animals also creates a positive environment for the work to be done and an overall appreciation for the animal sacrifice. Um, So to get at this phenomenon further, I'm talking to a couple of my favorite professors at VCU and we're going to see what they think about these fun uh, questions. Before we jump into questions, I've asked Dr. Jennifer Wolstenholm and Dr. Peter Hamilton to introduce themselves and give a little bit of background about how they got here at VCU.
2: Um, I'm an assistant professor at VCU in the pharmacology and toxicology department, and I've been doing um, research for a number of years, Um, but currently what we're looking at is um, the effects of alcohol and or social stress on adolescents and how that manifests into Long term problems um, when these animals or when these people reach adulthood from these either social stresses or from um, alcohol misuse.
1: Amazing.
0: Yeah, Uh, thanks so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here. So, uh, my background really quickly um, I'm a kid from the suburbs of North Carolina. I went to school to be an engineer, but while I was an undergrad, I fell in love with the brain. Uh, I went to graduate school at Vanderbilt where I studied psychostimulant addiction, particularly how it changed the biophysics of the dopamine transporter. I went to New York for my postdoctoral research where I studied uh, drug and stress uh, and how that changes the epigenome of limbic brain areas. And I started my lab here in 2019 where I'm kind of continuing that work.
1: Awesome, and I'm happy to work with you as well as you're on my committee, yeah. and so is Jennifer, so it's been a, a fun little party. Yeah, exactly. Stikas, so, Cool, let's get into it. All right, so I just have some fun, easy questions for you about okay. animal research. So the first one being, um, so we know that mice have basic responses to like stress or hunger, mating, um, and pain. Uh, we can tell kind of when a mouse feels quote-unquote bad, right? Uh, But can we really say
2: if it's like sad or depressed? I think no. So (laughs) I don't think that you can really say a mouse is sad or depressed, but that does not mean that they don't have feelings and that they don't elicit emotions as well. And so, you know, rodents is the primary animal that we work with, and rodents are social species. And so in some of our research, just by single housing, rodents during a critical period of development you can affect their cognitive behaviors and their social behaviors and even what we're looking at is risk for alcohol misuse but maybe other substance abuse um, as well later when they reach adulthood and so clearly these animals are experiencing things right if we put them through which we do not uh, put them through painful stimuli they will elicit pain responses Mm -hmm. right And so they do have emotions, and they have feelings, and those can be manipulated. However, (laughs) you can't say, per se, that this mouse is feeling depressed, or this mouse is feeling anxious, per se. Because when we talk about an emotion in a human context, there's a lot more that goes into it, and these paradigms are difficult to assess in an animal that cannot actually verbalize. Mm -hmm. um, their emotions
0: right so uh i don't want this to be a semantic argument uh, mm-hmm. where we're just defining what depression is but i i i don't think a mouse can be depressed it's a uniquely human syndrome mm-hmm.
1: yeah so do you think they could so what would it be a good way to like kind of describe a mouse feeling that way
0: i i think um or
1: any rodent per se i guess
0: feeling sad or feeling depressed yeah are you asking, like, how close to that? Today? Like, I guess,
1: like, is there a word that is better served to describe this non-human experience, experience in a rodent model?
0: Yeah, I think, we, I think we're triangulating that in um, neuropsychiatric research, where we describe reaction to experience. Mm-hmm. We can describe how an animal responds to stress or an anxiety-inducing event. We can describe their behavior but we can't describe the internal experience Mm -hmm. of a mouse. It's simply unknowable. Yeah,
1: we can't ask them. We don't speak their language. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um. So there was a really interesting study, and I don't know if you've seen this, but it looks at the facial expressions of mice, and there was a whole news article when it came out a couple of years ago about how um it's experiencing these emotions, and it emotes with its face just like a human, And and actually the other day I was looking at papers for Journal Club, and... There was, it was called, like, Dread or Despair, and it had literal faces of a baby mm-hmm. and a mouse next to each other for these graphs, and I just thought that was crazy. Yeah,
0: I remember reading textbooks, um, and there's, like, a, a, an image that I would see in my biology 101 textbooks, uh, and it's a, a baby, a human baby, that takes something tart, and it makes a facial expression. A monkey does the same thing, and a mouse even has this conserved response to a stimuli, like something sour. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, humans have this kind of uh, a conserved behavior when they experience something. Go to a soccer match, and if you see someone miss a goal, everyone has their hands on their heads. We're all doing the same yeah. kind of gesticulation. And, and mice seem to do a similar thing. I saw that science paper. I thought it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it conveys that there are commonalities uh, in response, so in that work, they looked at mice uh, and they would subject them to different experiences, and they could map the kind of facial expressions of these mice and correlate it with something like disgust or 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 um, what were the other like ones?
1: Pleasure or fear, fear, pain. Exactly,
0: um, and all mice seem to show a somewhat similar facial expression, and it could be deduced with a computer algorithm. So mm-hmm. we could actually look at this facial profile and use uh, computers to kind of deduce what the mouse is experiencing. I think that's a huge step forward in understanding that kind of internal state of the mouse Mm -hmm. because humans have this incredible capacity to look at each other and deduce uh, information about your internal state based on facial expression. There's a Mm -hmm. huge evolutionary advantage to being able to do this. This might imply that rodents and other species have a a similar capacity to communicate through expression uh, some of of their internal states.
2: So mice Mice. and rats actually will um, vocalize, and we can't always hear their vocalizations Mm -hmm. because they're in an ultrasonic um, frequency, but we can detect them with certain microphones and things like that. Um so mice will elicit ultrasonic vocalizations when they are experiencing certain pleasurable things such as having sex. Interesting. So <laughs> that's funny. That's someone's job is to, um, to measure them. Yeah, actually um <laughs> people have recorded this. I can't give you names of researchers that's off fine. the top of yeah. my head, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so these are things that you can record. In addition, Mice also exper- um, will vocalize during like maternal separation. So when the mice are very young, and they live you know in nests with their mom, and they're usually, they need to be kept warm and cuddled and nursed and licked and groomed um, for them to develop correctly. So when you separate the pups out of the nest, the, the pups will cry. You can't hear so them. So sad. <laughs> but, but I have, and I have actually recorded those okay. ultrasonic vocalizations. Um, Interesting. So, they I mean they yeah, so they do experience and they and they do display pleasure and pain. That's really interesting. I never thought about the fact that we just can't
1: like hear them. Yeah. So that's like just something. And they
2: have different chirps, right? So when you you know, we were doing it in pups, um, so they were about postnatal day ten mm-hmm. or so, um, you could see they'd have like short little chirps or they'd have long trills. Mm-hmm sometimes and and people have tried to you know dissect them and just decide and associate them with different behaviors and different and so they have different calls that's so cool uh, it is I, look, I mean we, so right so you know the animals are eliciting things we just can't interpret <laughs> yeah, all
1: what they're right. doing because we can't unless they don't speak our language yeah it's it's like trying to figure out what someone who is speaking a completely different language than you is saying to you kind right. of so that's really interesting and, it, and we, can't cor- like, we can work to correlate it, like you said, to the behaviors that we're seeing them do, but it's never going to be a confirmed, like, yes, Mr.
2: Mouse is feeling anxious
1: right now. Right, <laughs> right.
2: But also anxiety and depression are complex emotions mm-hmm. that also have a societal component to them as well. And you can't assign these similar societal components and other mm-hmm. aspects to you know, rodents, per se.
1: That leads me perfectly into oh. my next question. Um, so, <laughs> if we can't ask the mouse how it's feeling, and we can't have these, you know, societal implications for anxiety and depression in mice, how do we model something like anxiety or depression in,
2: like, animals? So, first, most scientists don't say we're modeling anxiety or depression. And I don't know why I said that. Right? Right? I know better. So <laughs> not, I'm sorry, I'm I, li- not no, to ask, I literally you? in. The so most people try to say anxiety-like behavior or depression-like behavior. I sometimes use depression phenotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, also they're typically saying we're modeling this. So we, we don't know. But what we can do is we can put animals in situations that we think are ethologically relevant to them. And so one good example is, or one maybe not good example, but one, two examples I can give you um, when we're... Are trying to decide about anxiety-like behavior. So we're trying to say, are these mice trying to overcome a conflict? And the way that we do that is a simple, very simple, straightforward. The most simple, straightforward way is to put them in a very large box with a bright light, and it's called the open field test. (laughs) And in the very large box, a mouse wants to be feeling comfortable. But they're also curious animals, and so they want to go out into novel areas and, and kind of um, observe them and sniff around and see what mm-hmm. they're like and investigate them. But they're also nocturnal animals and so they feel more comfortable. And again, I use that, you can't see my air quotes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm using <laughs> air quotes, right? We, we think they are more comfortable and they show that they spend more time in the dark. And so the question that we're asking in this conflict is, are you willing to go away from the corners of this box and venture out into this bright center? Mm-hmm. And so really all we're asking is, you know, can, how do you act in this conflict? Another way we could model this is to use a box that's divided. And so you have a dark component and a light component. And we measure the amount of time they spend in the light component or the distance they travel in the light component. And this is again, they prefer to be in the dark side. We expect they'll probably spend maybe 20% of their time in the light mm-hmm. if they're as that's a maybe a moderate level of an anxiety type phenotype <laughs> um, but if they increase their amount of time or distance they spend in the light we would interpret that as potentially having less anxiety however other people have gone and they've looked at genetic loci that are related to those two tasks they also used an open field um uh, sorry an elevated plus maze task mm-hmm. And they looked at these three anxiety-like behavior tasks, and they tried to map what genes were correlated to the behaviors in each of these tasks. And what they found was that each actual assay had different genes that mapped to it. So even in this case where, you know, most scientists think we're trying to identify, you know, how an animal would react in this conflict test, um, we're still, depending on what type of arena we put them in, it's different genes that seem to be playing a role. And so it adds another level of complexity, but it's also difficult to interpret as well. But it's starting to lead some places. Mm -hmm. The other thing, just one briefly, is um, that some of these tests have been pharmacologically validated. And so not super great, and not 100%, but in general, where in uh, drugs that uh, pharmaceutical drugs that have been given to people that reduce anxiety, they tend to reduce anxiety in these animal models, mm-hmm. and so they seem to be pharmacologically validated to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, and so that makes us able to kind of do these correlations a little bit cleaner. and start to translate
2: yeah. between between animal mm-hmm. systems. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I would make the point that I think core fundamental. Uh, uh, behavioral responses are likely conserved. So, disgust, uh, tasting something sour and having that kind of facial response, fear—these are primal. These are these are ancient, um, kind of experiences that that are encoded, I think, in a lot of different organisms. But the um, existential dread of your mortality I think gets a little <laughs> bit more nuanced. It's yeah. hard to say. And those become those might be more uniquely human experiences,
1: right? So I know you also work a little bit with models of addiction as well, and and so this is something that I didn't touch on as much um, with Jennifer, so I was just curious what your take is on, like, can a rodent model be addicted to drugs in a similar way that humans can? Do we know?
0: Yeah, you know what I'm going to say. Well, I know, but
1: for the audience. Yeah, (laughs) of
0: course. So... So the answer is a lot like the the depression related question. Mm-hmm. Addiction is uh, in the DSM, uh, the diagnostic manual that uh, clinicians use to to um, to diagnose folks with these syndromes. It's a human disorder, and at its core, uh, it's a it's a disorder of choice a uh, a person's choice to use the drug over uh, more fulfilling. In, uh, rewarding activities like social relationships, mm-hmm. um, work, things like this. But what's interesting is that um, animals will, will choose to take drug as well. Mm-hmm. So we don't know about the co- higher level cognitive deficits that are associated with addictions that humans definitely experience, but uh, some of the most fundamental aspects of drug addiction, which is compulsive drug taking, animals will do this, r- mm-hmm. rodents will do this. And I think this is a product of the neurobiological level at which drugs act. A lot of drugs, particularly the drugs I study, like psychostimulants or opioids, affect the limbic system, which is an evolutionarily ancient brain region, um, which is, uh, has uh, dopamine as a primary neurotransmitter in the system, and it's conserved through phylogeny, in fact, C. elegans use dopamine to coordinate movement, just like we do. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you give cocaine to a nematode, a worm, it will move more. Um, Similarly, mice will choose to take drug. We actually perform these experiments in the lab where we have the mouse press a lever for a drug infusion. And they will do this. They'll escalate doing this. uh, And they'll do this in the face of adverse consequences, which is very similar to what Mm -hmm. humans do so i i it's almost semantic i cannot say if a mouse can get addicted but they certainly use drug and they escalate their drug use and they'll do it in the face of adverse consequences so it's actually Mm -hmm. quite close to the human syndrome that is drug addiction
1: it's so it's like this conserved behavior like we kind of mentioned earlier but it's Different because it's not as, I guess, multifaceted as a human experience would be. Yeah, yeah. because
0: in humans, there are cognitive aspects to addiction. Mm-hmm. Dis- the despair, the um, uh, the feelings of guilt and worthlessness that, that can be associated with, uh, you know, being addicted to a drug. We just don't know. We can't mm-hmm. know if a, a rodent experiences those things.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the hardest part about doing preclinical research, right, is that, like, we want to have our work matter for humans, and right. so I think that's a lot of the reason why we kind of put some of these, like, words onto the mice, because we want people to think it's translational, like, it's we're not just playing with mice all day. Right, like I, right. My goal
2: is not to decrease mouse drinking, yeah. right? I don't think there's a lot of <laughs> mice that have alcohol misuse problems. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's just something
1: to keep in mind when we, like, talk about this stuff, and, right. you know, we're not yelling at anyone for like anthropomorphizing i mean don't do it but like (laughs) but like it's an understandable thing that happens like based on the work that we do um do you think there's any pros or cons to anthropomorphizing the animal subjects just curious
0: yeah um i think a a con i think there are cons are the ones that first jump to my mind um i i think you're i I think you're misleading yourself if you imagine a mouse or a fly or cells in a dish are human right there has to be a Mm -hmm. line Um, so you people don't anthropomorphize yeast right right so there there is there is a line um and i think it could affect your science speaking as a scientist i think if you're anthropomorphizing you're likely not doing a, a good experiment. Plus, like you touched on in the beginning, that's a lot of emotional stress. Uh, if if you if you're assigning human characteristics to these animals, I think it's damaging. I think all living things have dignity and worth, um, but that doesn't mean that they have experiences that are identical to humans. I don't think it's. I think it's something we do as humans. We assign human features to everything. We see faces in trees, mm-hmm. we anthropomorphize things because we create uh, human contact. That's, that's a feature of our neurobiology. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not to say that that stuff is real. So I, I think we just need to keep our own neurobiology, our own proclivities in check mm-hmm. as we I- engage with uh, other animals and other uh, research organisms.
1: Awesome. I think that's a good way to put it. So before I ask our awesome guests if they think if you give a mouse DMT, they would see Mouse God, I just wanted to touch on if we can tell if mice are experiencing um, mystical experiences or visual hallucinations like people. The last episode, I talked to my colleague Mario about head twitch response. Um, But, you know, like we mentioned, uh, the proof has not been there that mice actually hallucinate. Um, mice do have eye dilations when exposed to different, um, drugs or light similar to humans. Um, one study reported the use of optogenetics, which is controlling brain activity with light to induce perception of objects that aren't there. Um, so they use this no-go type task where they train mice to discriminate between different visual cues. And when, um, the mice have different parts of their brain stimulated with light Um, It induces this cue perception that wasn't really there. Um, It's kind of complicated, but it's a super cool paper, and I'll link it in the blog. Um, But in this mentioned study, and the whole point of this is that um, they use different light and color patterns to train mice and induce these perceptual changes. Um, And what they found is that mice did press the lever or button um, for things that aren't there. But the question still remains, do mice see mouse God? Um, You know, spiritual experiences are anecdotally and scientifically reported with the use of psychedelics. Um, And that begs an even broader research question of is the mystical experience required for the therapeutic effects of psychedelics? And we can't ask the mouse to fill out the mystical experiences questionnaire and rate their trip. So the answer standing right now is we don't know. Uh, so my last question for you is the best question of this whole interview. Um, so, and the, I'll give you a little bit of background on this question. Um, when I was practicing for my comprehensive exam to so my partner, uh, one of, I had him like ask me questions, um, cause he's not a scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first question he asked me was, if you give a mouse DMT, does it see mouse god? Just to prepare me, you know? Um, so that is my question for you today. I've also had some clinical researchers um, yeah. ask me if if mice have mystical experiences. So, um, and, and, you know, sometimes I don't know how to answer. So that's yeah. why I'm bringing the question out.
0: So. I'm happy to take a swing at this. So You might be better <laughs> equipped to answer this. But yeah, d- does a mouse see ma- mouse god? Yes. So I, I I would actually turn this a little bit on you. I suspect strongly that folks who take DMT or other psychedelics, I su- I suspect their their experiences are in very subjective. I would bet that by human to human, the experience that one has on these substances depends largely on the culture from which they originate. So if human to human, you have quite a bit difference in what God you see or what your experience is, mm-hmm. imagine the chasm of the experience <laughs> when we go from organism to organism species to species mm-hmm. so does a mouse see mouse god which one i i could i can't begin to answer that does so we for example we could put the serotonin 2a receptor in neurons in a dish mm-hmm. right yep and we could put dmt on that in the bath on those neurons do those neurons see neuron god like at, at, it, there has well, to are be they a,
1: visual system neurons
0: exactly. or are they <laughs> Exactly. So that so you've touched on the reality is is that the the pharmacology or the molecule itself doesn't produce anything. DMT by uh, virtue of it functioning in an intact nervous system does it produce the effects. Yes. There's nothing intrinsic about that molecule that makes one see God. Mm-hmm. It's only acting on the brain. So the the question is actually what brains are capable of seeing gods yeah. what, ga- what brains are capable of having these kind of mystical experiences so I think there's a line, I would bet that cells in a dish aren't, they just aren't capable mm-hmm. but the line's somewhere, and I don't know where a mouse is relative to that line we know that mice have serotonin 2A receptors they have cortices but something that's unique about humans is that we have particularly engorged prefrontal cortices. Mm-hmm. The receptor that DMT acts on is particularly enriched in our frontal cortex. And this the function in this brain area may particularly manifest some of these experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think it really depends uh, on the n- neurobiological system in which DMT mm-hmm. is acting.
1: In the order of the evolution of the brain exactly. in this the animal or exactly. person or
0: yeah. exactly and it may not be a straight line i'm not trying to say that um you know human is on the top and then we got a dolphin and then we got something else it's not i bet dr-
1: dolphins see dolphin god that
0: bet you you know their <laughs> prefrontal cortices are it's insane
1: they're they got yeah.
0: they're big yeah <laughs> but I, I also don't want to just purely do a, a kind of phrenology where yeah. i'm saying like the size of the brain is what determines the worth of the organism because we know that, like, octopi, things like that can uh, be very intelligent, mm-hmm. and it's not proportional necessarily to the size yeah. of the brain. Otherwise, whales would be the most... That's like, true. Um, I think the there's
1: animals. a study that gave MDMA to octopi.
0: Oh, okay. cat, well, What happened?
1: I don't remember. It's off the top of my head. <laughs> Was but...
0: Cthulhu summoned?
1: Uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, who knows, right? Yeah. Maybe not with MDMA, but maybe with DMT. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's the never octopi know. god right there. <laughs> Uh, but no I think you make a really good point there is that um, there is probably something happening in in respect to these hallucinations in other species but how evolved I guess are they is it just visual is it spiritual is it God whatever yeah. you know yeah I think it depends on person on you know evolved. Cortices, you know, a lot of stuff.
0: An amazing thing about drugs, something that I love about my research, um, is that drugs kind of push the gas and the brakes of the nervous system. They kind of reveal the extremes of what is capable, both in terms of terrible features of the nervous system, the capacity for self-loathing and dread, it's all there, and the capacity for euphoria. It's mm-hmm. all within our nervous system. Um, it, it pushes us to these these kind of limits, and it reveals... In an amazing capacity in our nervous system. I be, Because we cannot know the experience of other organisms, we don't exactly know the full capacity of their nervous systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's impossible to really comment, if to know if the mouse sees Mouse God, but it certainly does something. If
1: you give a mouse DMT, mm-hmm. do you think they'll see Mouse God?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think so. No, only because if I, if I give people DMT, I don't think all of them are seeing people. their God, people God. Mm, that's true. So um, I do know that there is a lot of, or at least there's, there's been talk about you know religiosity and things like that associated with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And so there is some sort of connection. But I do not think that a mouse would see Mouse God. <laughs> I would like to know what Mouse God looks like.
1: I was going to say, like, do you think Mouse God is a mouse?
2: Or do you think it's its own kind of deity? I don't know what Mouse God would look like, but I can imagine what Mouse Heaven would look like. I, right? I'm going to need you to draw that for I me. I can draw that. It and then I'm going to upload it to lots our lots of bedding. <laughs> <laughs> because when you do certain tasks, you can tell they like to play when they have lots of bedding. That's true. It would have lots of tubes and things for them to crawl around into. Mm-hmm. Right? Some of these <laughs> really complex level yeah. um, behaviors. that, And, you know, they'd have burrowing systems for some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of food. Some mice really like alcohol, so you'd have to, of course, give them a little little bit of alcohol. If their God allows it. If their God allows it. (laughs) For their mouse heaven.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you uh, for chatting with me today on this fun and important topic. Sure, uh, anytime. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Um, glad to be here. Thank you.
1: So that about covers it. Only time and a lot of research will be able to answer the big Q of the necessity of mystical experience, but the sillier question of Mouse God I think is most likely a no. But if you have thoughts or comments, let us know. Thanks for listening. And as always, please check out blog corresponding to this podcast. I'll have some links for reading um, and some cute little cartoons, maybe depicting mouse heaven. Uh, So please subscribe to our podcast and spread some love. Hope you guys tune in again next time.